Thanks, Ted. Well, good morning, Lighthouse Bible Church. It is quite a joy to see you all this morning. I do bring you greetings from New Life Community Church, and I count it really a privilege uh, to stand before you this morning. I'm grateful for the partnership that New Life continues to have over the years with Lighthouse. It is such a joy to have really fellow like-minded churches here in the Bay Area. I know that they are few and far between, and so I just want to give thanks to the Lord for that, and I'm thankful for Lighthouse, for your ministry, for your elders, and really now for the opportunity to turn back to the Word of God this morning. On December 15th, 1979, two men by the names of Chris Haney and Scott Abbott were playing a game of Scrabble. After realizing that they were missing several tiles, though, they scrapped their game and mulled over how to create a new board game based on their ability, on one's ability, to remember random facts. They wondered how rich those Scrabble creators must have been and determined that it was time for them to invent a game of their own. By the end of the evening, the design of a new game was born. The game was launched in 1981, and within just several years, sales had reached over $800 million. As of today, 100 million copies of this game have been sold in 17 different languages with 50 special editions. It's become the eighth best-selling board game of all time. It's even been said that this game has single-handedly been responsible for changing the landscape of the board gaming industry. It proved that board games didn't just attract kids, but they also enticed adults as well. For those of you who still enjoy board games, you can thank this game for better or worse for the fact that you have board games to play even today. This game they invented would go on to be called Trivial Pursuit. Now, I think I've played this game only once, but it's a game of trivia. It's a play on words, but the premise of this game really is simply to test how much knowledge you have of trivial matters. The best Trivial Pursuit players are those who know the most about matters that mean little for real life. The fact of the matter, though, is that most people in this world are playing their own version of Trivial Pursuit. With the one life that God has given them, they squander it on matters that really are inconsequential, meaning little to God, they mean nothing in eternity, and they really do little for the benefit of others. I recall hearing once that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So what are you pursuing this morning? With this one life that God has given you, what has been your priority? What is occupying your attention what does your life revolve around? And it makes sense for unbelievers who don't know God, who can't see the light, who are blinded in their sin, to squander their lives around the TV, wasting it on social media, filling their times with really trivial pursuits. But what about you? You who profess to follow God, to love Him, 
and even have received the wonderful gift of salvation. And yet when you look at your life, how often are you consumed with matters that are really insignificant to God? This morning, we're going to assess our priorities and seek to align them to the pursuits that God has commanded you to. This morning, you're going to see two essential pursuits for genuine Christians. Two essential pursuits for genuine Christians. And you need to align your pursuits to these pursuits so that your life can be distinctly Christian and so that you can see the evidence, being assured that someday you will see the face of God. So follow along and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. We'll be in focusing really on verse 14 today, but we'll read really that entire section for surrounding for really for context. I will be reading from the NASB 1995 though. So follow along as I read. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author has been using a theme of running comparing the Christian life to an endurance race. He starts this chapter by saying, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now coming now down to verse 12 though, the Hebrew author urges his readers to lift their drooping hands, to strengthen their weak knees, to make their paths straight as they persevere in this race. Christians can be described as those who are running. They are pursuing. They are chasing after something as they head towards a finish line. Verse 14, though, focuses his readers back on the race. And today our text tells you to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now looking at verse 14, though, you see that this verse begins with a command, an imperative. This word here is to pursue. This word literally means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. Just as a runner is racing toward a finish line, this word speaks of striving, chasing after, making every effort to obtain these godly virtues. Notice a couple observations, though. First, this command to pursue suggests that diligence and effort are required here. You see, whatever God is telling you to pursue, when you see that in the scriptures, by the very definition of this word, it really requires hard work. These virtues don't come simply without effort. 
This pursuit, then, is not for the lazy of heart. People nowadays tend to shun hard work. It's the human heart to really do the bare minimum just to get by. Christians, though, cannot afford to be lazy. They know that anything that has ever mattered really in life is achieved by hard work. Another observation, though. This command is also a present imperative. Meaning that if I read Hebrews 12, 14 today, it applies to me. If I read it tomorrow, if I read it 20 years from now, or even on my deathbed, this text still stands as an imperative for me as a Christian. In other words, this command to pursue is a lifelong task. You are to pursue these godly virtues for the rest of your life. One more note about this word pursue. When you pursue something, your life is oriented around this pursuit. For example, some of you, maybe, might want to buy a house here in the Bay Area. And when you are purchasing, or going in that process, into the process of purchasing a home, especially in the craziness of this market here in the Bay Area, you don't go about spending all of your money on all these other frivolous matters because this one pursuit of wanting to buy a house reorients all of your other financial pursuits. Everyone, though, here in this world is pursuing something. Everyone orients their lives around something. Maybe it's financial prosperity. Maybe it's a romantic relationship or growing a bigger family. Maybe it's power, prestige, or a good reputation. Maybe it's pleasure and comfort and entertainment, or safety, or security. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you're pursuing, you are pursuing something. Your life is oriented around it. It consumes your mind and your attention and your passions, and you make choices to build toward that pursuit. And so if someone was to come and examine your life, maybe do a biography about you, interview your friends and family members, what would stand out about them? What would they notice that your life revolves around? What do you pursue? And the real question is, does that pursuit align with what God wants you to pursue? Or is it something that Solomon would say is simply striving after wind? Now looking at verse 14, it starts off by saying, pursue peace with all men. This verse prioritizes the word peace. It's emphatic as the first word in the sentence. The first essential pursuit for genuine Christians is this, peace with everyone. Genuine Christians pursue peace with everyone. Now, the Bible speaks much of the priority for Christians to be peacemakers. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God expects you to be one who pursues peace. When peace and unity with others describes your life, it's proof that you are God's children. On the flip side, when your life is full of strife and unresolved conflicts, it calls into question whether you truly are one of God's children. 
Now, several issues arise regarding this command to pursue peace with all men, with everyone. What is this peace the Hebrew author speaks of? Let's first talk about what peace is. What peace is. When the Bible speaks about peace, there are several dimensions of the peace that God offers to you. The first dimension is being at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian today, you were once an enemy of God. Because of your sin, an infinite chasm separated you from a holy God. But only through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross could that peace be secured. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to bring peace to his people. When a man or woman places their faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection for their sins, their debt has been paid, forgiveness is granted, reconciliation occurs, the conflict you had with God has now been replaced by peace with him. This peace with God leads you to another kind of peace, another dimension, peace within yourself. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you, he bears fruit. The fruit of the Spirit includes a type of peace that's an ordered, settled, undisturbed to what life, whatever life brings your way. The opposite of this peace is anxiety and worry. Instead, Christians are granted God's peace within their hearts to have an inner calm within themselves because of a confident reliance on God's word and his promises. Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what does it say? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace with God, and then God's peace bestowed upon you, leads you then to seek to a third dimension of peace, peace with others. And this is what Hebrews 12, 14 is talking about. Christians can be described as those who have received God's peace, are peaceful in heart, and now pursue peace with others. But you can't quickly jump to having peace with others without securing first a peace with God and having God's peace in your heart. They really do come as one package. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body. Peace starts in your heart and then is expressed within the collective unity within the body of Christ. And so the first step to being a peacemaker is to be a Christian. It's almost impossible to seek peace with others without first having peace with God. Non-Christians and unbelievers don't have the kind of tools to pursue peace the way that God intends it to be. This peace is often referred to in the scriptures as a type of unity. It's more than the absence of conflict and strife. It's the presence of genuine harmony, understanding, and goodwill between people. It's the direct result of God's command for you to love your neighbor as yourself. It is something that is so winsome, 
so unique, so different from the world that when the world sees it, they're shocked by its power. In John 17, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer and prays for all future believers. And he says, I pray that they may be all one, to have peace so that the world may believe that you sent me. This peace you are to pursue is so unique, it's winsome even to the watching world. They see your peace They see your brotherhood. They see that you are the family of God, united as one body, and they wonder, who is their God? And so for a moment, consider today, is there anyone that you're not at peace with? Does anyone have something against you? Is there something you know you have something against outstanding with someone else? Something that has been left unsaid, a conflict that has now been brewing for days, weeks, or months. The command here is to pursue peace with them. Several years ago, my wife, uh, Chen, and I were visiting family in Malaysia. She's from Malaysia, so we were visiting them out in Malaysia. We went out shopping. We went to a shoe store. And I like, you know, good shoes. I found some really cheap, nice-looking basketball shoes. I play basketball, so I was like, oh, man, nice, cheap basketball shoes. Nikes, even. I looked them up. Wow, astounded by the price, 75% off, so much cheaper than in the U.S. I was like, wow, maybe I was thinking, you know, in Malaysia, that's where they create a lot of, and they design or, you know, make a lot of those shoes, so it must have been cheaper there for a reason. And then my wife stopped me right away, and she said, don't buy that. And she said, it's fake. And I was like, it looks fine. And I thought that really fake only comes from certain places, other places in the world, not from Malaysia. But I guess they do have fake stuff in Malaysia. In the same way, you know, to be sure, there are many counterfeit forms of peace. Many fake kinds of peace. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, the false prophets were proclaiming peace and peace But Jeremiah said, but there was no peace. So you have to be wary then of peace faking. Let's talk about some counterfeit forms of peace, what peace is not. A first kind of counterfeit peace is sweeping it under the rug. When you sweep a conflict under the rug, you don't make peace. You try to hide it, but you're only creating a bigger mess while doing it. You cover it up for a while, act like it's not there, but everyone knows it's still around. Have you ever tried to hide something under a rug? My kids have. I tell them to clean up, put their toys away, they put it under the rug. If they try to hide a toy under the rug, you might not see the toy itself, but you know it's still there. Trying to cover up conflicts in the same way, it covers it up for a while, but it doesn't resolve it. It doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't even hide it. It's just there, and it really remains there. It bothers you. It annoys you. And this is where bitterness and resentment begins to swell up. Now, related to sweeping a conflict under the rug, another counterfeit piece is putting on a front of peace. I know, I'm sure you've done this before. You're on your way to church, 
and you get into a conflict with your spouse or a family member. You're arguing with each other. You're in a bad mood. Your blood is boiling over, and then you drive into the parking lot. And what do you do? You walk out, open the doors, smiles all around, right? As if nothing ever happened. This is the quintessential Asian approach to conflict. Don't let anyone see your problems. Hide all the dirtiness and messiness for anyone to see. Save face at all costs. Don't ever let anyone see your problems. But that's not peace. In fact, those that are consumed with saving face really will never have peace. Because peace is only available to those who are willing to confess their sins, who recognize their failure, and who know that they need peace. Another counterfeit peace is a ceasefire. A ceasefire. You know, last year, another conflict happened in the Gaza Strip, occurred between Israel and Palestine. Um, Some of our church members were visiting Israel right around that time, and I were glad that they just made it home right before all that, that stuff was happening. But after three days of fighting, Israel and Palestine agreed to a truce, a ceasefire. But we all know that that is not peace. That's simply regrouping for another day. That's simply trying to keep away from a full-scale war. We all know that Israel and Palestine are going to fight again. It's a matter of when. But taking this back to our homes and our relationships... If the same conflicts keep coming up, you're arguing about the same issues over and over again. That's what I often see in many marriages, even marriages at our church. You have a conflict one day about your in-laws. Then a month later, another conflict about your in-laws. Another week later, another conflict. Conflict after conflict about the same issues over and over again. That tells me that peace is not happening It's just a ceasefire. You know it's a ceasefire if the same issues from the past keep coming coming up in the present. The time you have in between these fights is only a regrouping for another one. Now, one final counterfeit piece, though, is letting people stay in their sin. In the name of peace, you see, it's much easier to put your head in the sand, to withdraw, or even to give in. This is not to say you don't have a part in a conflict. You have to get the log out of your own eye before you can take the speck out of someone else's. At the same time, allowing someone to stay in their sin without doing anything about it, how can that be loving? How can that be promoting of true peace and unity. If sin is a cancer, which it is, to let it stick around and infect everything else about a person and a relationship, that's not peace. It's selfish to do nothing about it. It's self-preservation, the opposite really of love and the opposite of peace. So we've seen what peace is, what peace is not, Now look again at the text. Who are you to seek peace with? The text reads, pursue peace with all men. The word literally means all. All. 
You are to pursue peace with everyone, every kind of person. This includes your spouse. This includes your children. This includes your parents. This includes people of different colors and walks of life and social classes. Christians and non-Christians are included in this group of people as well. This includes the people you don't like being around, the person that annoys you whenever they open up their mouth, the person that is a stranger on the road, the coworker in the office, the close friend who just betrayed your trust. The very person you don't want to pursue peace with is the very person in which this text applies to you. Will peace always occur, though? Sadly, no, even despite your best efforts. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What this means is that despite doing everything you can on your part for peace, sometimes, sadly, it doesn't happen. You might ask for forgiveness. You might confess your sins. You might seek restitution. But that doesn't guarantee that they will receive it or even be willing to reconcile with you. Peace is always two-sided. It requires two parties. Jesus was peaceful towards all men, but all men were not peaceful to him. And this is especially apparent when you have a conflict with an unbeliever. Sadly enough, unbelievers don't have the tools to live at peace with others, at least in a true, lasting, deep, and profound way. You can be at peace with an unbeliever to an extent. You can have the absence of conflict, but not genuine unity and brotherhood that the Bible speaks of. You see, an implication of this command to pursue peace with everyone is to evangelize everyone. Earlier this year, my wife and I were talking with an unbelieving family member who really, she lives in the midst of a terrible marriage with her husband. She had just gotten into another big conflict with her husband and she ran to our house, knocked on our door, and shared about all of the pain and suffering that this marriage has been causing her. She brought up issues even from decades past. And I used this opportunity, she's not a believer, to share the gospel with her again. And then I remember trying to talk to her about, you know, how to respond to this conflict. I gave her two options. One, you can keep things the same. Don't do anything about it, as you have been doing for years and decades. Or two, you can ask for forgiveness for your part in some of the problems that are going on in your problem. You can start there. Keep things the same or ask for forgiveness. I told her that keeping things the same will produce the same results. But maybe, just maybe, asking for forgiveness might have a chance to make some real changes in her life. Can you guess what she chose, though? She chose to keep things the same, just as they are. True story. I'll keep things the same as they are. I will not ask for forgiveness. All this to say is that unbelievers don't know how to make peace. It's foreign to them. It makes no sense. 
But Christians, you have the Bible. And the Bible clearly tells you how to pursue peace. And that's the last issue I want us to consider. How can you pursue peace with everyone? Author Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, summarizes four steps to what peacemaking should look like. In fact, at our church, we've adopted these four steps for all members to agree on and live out as the process for peacemaking. We call it the peacemaker's pledge. Those four steps are this. Number one, glorify God. Instead of focusing on your own desires or dwelling on what others that have done to you, you rejoice in the Lord and seek His praise and depend on His forgiveness, His wisdom, His power and love to obey God's command. Glorify God, which leads us to the second. Get the log out of your own eye. Instead of blaming others or resisting correction, you take responsibility for your own contribution to a conflict. Confessing any sins in which you have wronged another, asking God to help you change, and being ready to accept the consequences and restitution needed to repair the harm you caused. If you had just 2% a part of a conflict, you confess first your 2%. Which leads us to step three, to gently restore. When you see an offense is more than a minor one, you talk personally and graciously with that other party, seeking to restore them rather than to condemn them. When a conflict with a Christian brother or sister cannot be resolved in private, you then ask others in the body of Christ to help you settle that matter in a biblical manner, following what Matthew 18 tells you and the steps really of church discipline. And then step four, go and be reconciled. You will actively pursue Genuine peace and reconciliation, forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, while seeking just and mutually beneficial solutions to your differences. And so, all of this to say, are you a man or woman of peace? Are you pursuing it with the hard work that's needed for you to be at peace with all men. The first essential pursuit of a genuine Christian is peace with everyone. Now, going back to verse 14, let's examine the second half of this text. It reads this, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The second half of this text serves as a warning. There is a qualification here. You are to pursue sanctification because without it, you won't see God. Clearly, this is a reference to heaven, to eternal life. Can you see God today? No. It's only in heaven when people and when men and women are granted the privilege to see God when they are perfected in glory. What this text tells you then and says that a prerequisite to seeing God in heaven is your sanctification here on earth. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is distinctly a Christian term. This term literally means to be holy. It's a reference to holiness. This is why some other translations translate this term here as holiness. Sanctification means to be 
personally consecrated to God, set apart for his purposes, to be holy. God not only cleanses you from your sins, but he also separates you from your natural love of sin and puts a new heart within you, one that loves God, one that loves his word and obeys his commands. To be holy is to be morally pure, so pure that it's distinct and separate from this world and all that the world conforms to. Sanctification really is holiness. This brings us now to the second essential pursuit for genuine Christians. Holiness in everything. Pursue holiness in everything. This pursuit of holiness is based on the fact that God is holy. In Isaiah 6 verse 3, God is described as holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Nowhere else in the scriptures is God's attributes repeated three times. If you were to describe God with one word, the best word to use is that he is holy. God is holy. Now, when we speak of God's holiness, though, what we mean is that he is a cut above and entirely separate from sinful mankind. He is absolutely morally pure. There is no fault, no weakness, no failure. He is perfect in all his being and nature. Because God is holy, though, he requires his people to be holy as well. You are to be set apart. You are to be pure. You are to be separate from this world. In both the Old and New Testament, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. And this imperative is also talked about countless times as well in the Scriptures. And yet, why don't Christians talk much about holiness? Now, this term to be holy can refer to two kinds of holiness. See, many Christians falsely assume and focus only on one kind of holiness. And because of this false assumption and misplaced focus, you see professing Christians who look nothing like Christ and assume that that is okay. First, there is something called positional holiness. Every Christian is positionally sanctified before God. When you become a believer, you are made holy and set apart by God. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says that based on Jesus' sacrifice, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 1 Corinthians 6 11 says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the past tense of this sanctification. In this sense, Christians have already been sanctified. In the New Testament, Christians are called saints. A saint is a set-apart one, a holy one. Even the Corinthians, with all of their problems, are still called saints. Because if God saves you, he has sanctified you in terms of of your position before God. But there's another type of sanctification. 
there is a progressive sanctification, a progressive holiness. And this is the typical and usual way that this term is used in the scriptures. This speaks of growth in godliness, the gradual increasing of holiness that characterizes a Christian from a non-Christian and distincts them, distinguishes them. You know that this text is talking about progressive sanctification because the text uses the word pursue. It's not completed. It's ongoing. In the previous passage, in Hebrews 12 verse 10, it says that God disciplines us throughout our lives so that we may share in his holiness. In the text afterwards, we see that Esau, who was Isaac's son, and yet his immorality proved he was not part of the covenant community. Whereas positional sanctification is solely a work of God, God sets you apart, progressive sanctification requires your involvement, requires your effort and hard work. At my wedding, uh, Pastor Amos at New Life, he did our wedding, he did our wedding ceremony. And at the end of that ceremony, Amos pronounced me and my wife as husband and wife. And in that one moment, before God and before our witnesses, Chen and I, we were positionally one flesh. We were husband and wife. We were married. No longer two, but one. In that moment, we were positionally unified. At the same time, a lot of changes had to be made to make our positional unity a practical unity. We had to move in together. We had to join our bank accounts. We had to learn how to live life with each other. Things like learning how to resolve conflicts, learning how to appreciate our differences, adapting to each other's various preferences, you know, learning, how, learning what clean really is, what does clean mean, how often to shower, all of those things. Even to this day, we still have to work at our unity and ensuring that we're unified in our decision-making. In the same way, when you first become a Christian, you are positionally holy. But that is just the inauguration. That is just the wedding ceremony. Everything after that requires the hard work of making you practically holy. What is the statement, without which no one will see the Lord? What does that statement mean? Later on in the next verse, there's a participle there which explains this. It says, seeing to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Does your salvation depend to some degree on your attaining a level of personal holiness? Does God's grace have conditions attached to it? If so, how can it be free How can it be a gift? Now, going back to marriage for a moment, nobody in their right mind would say, hey, you're going to have a great marriage because you had a great and extravagant wedding. In fact, people, we would call people foolish, who focus so much on the wedding and not much on the marriage. A wedding is supposed to be once, And marriage is the rest of your life. And yet, 
how foolish and irrational it is for Christians to focus only on the inauguration and rarely on the progression. This text is not teaching a works-based salvation. Not at all. If anyone taught that, let them be accursed, as Galatians 1 says. But it is teaching a faith that works, a faith that leads to holiness. He's speaking of purity in life. Without ongoing transformation into the image of Christ, you have no rightful claim on the grace of God. Holiness always accompanies genuine salvation. This is why the Hebrew author says that without it, without holiness, you won't see the Lord. Because a faith that saves is a faith that works towards holiness. You see, this text here is frightening, especially given our propensity to be self-deceived and overestimate our goodness. See, these words here are strong. You can't avoid it. You can't live a life like the world, conform to it, aligned with it, and expect to see the Lord when it's all said and done. Over the years, I'm sure you've heard those statistics, you know, by Barna and Pew Research that have said things like, you know, born-again Christians and non-Christians are practically the same. They do the same things, they live the same way, they get divorces at the same rate, they commit, they commit adultery at the same rate, they get abortions at the same rate, etc. And then you hear people say, you see, Christians and non-Christians, it really makes no difference at all. Now there's one big problem, though, behind these statistics. It's really... Who is being included in this category of born-again Christians? Is it people making their own self-evaluation? Or is it God's evaluation? A better way and more biblical way to understand these kinds of statistics is that there are many people in the Christian camp that aren't genuine. They're self-deceived. They're among those whom Christ will someday say, I never knew you. See, this is key, especially for those who grew up in the church. You might have always known intellectually that Jesus died on a cross for your sins. But when did you truly become a believer? I know some people say, you know, I became a Christian when I was six years old, but didn't really start living for Christ until I was 30. When did you really become a Christian then? You became a Christian when your life started to change. When holiness became a real desire and the truths of God became a priority over the things of the world. It's pretty much impossible for you to say that you became a Christian and then not exhibit any fruit at all, any change, any holiness for months, years, and decades even. Here's the point. Christians are saved to holiness. And without holiness, you refute the profession that you claim to have. 
Now, since holiness is so often neglected and overlooked, I want us to address some common questions about holiness. Number one, do you need to be holy to become a Christian? In other words, is holiness a prerequisite to salvation? Like I said earlier, no. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, in Christ's finished work on the cross. It's entirely the work of God's grace bestowed upon sinners. You become a Christian entirely by faith alone, without any works, without any effort. At the same time, holiness is the evidence. Holiness is the fruit. Holiness is the inevitable result and proof of true salvation. A second question, though. Why do I need to be holy, then? What difference does it make? Many reasons. Number one is that God is holy. See, because God is holy, He has commanded His people to be holy. But this text tells you another reason. That those who see Him must be holy. Because heaven is holy. Puritan J.C. Ryle, in his great book, one of my favorite books, Holiness, it's, that's the title, Holiness, he wrote this, Heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes, not your taste. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly happy be happy if you had not been holy on earth? Question three. How holy do I need to be? Is there a certain threshold that I need to meet? Now, I'm hesitant to give any sort of answer to this because if you're concerned with the threshold of holiness, you're really asking the wrong question. God commands you to be holy for I am holy. That is a lifelong pursuit. But there's an important word to be thinking about here, about this. The word here is progress. Progress. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul exhorts Timothy, saying, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And then he says this, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Are you living a life, more of a life of holiness today? than last year, than the year before? Do you see progress? And do others see progress in you? I'm not saying you won't struggle and fail at times here and there, but is the trajectory of your life, when you look on the grand scheme of it, is it conforming to the lust of your flesh or to the God who is holy? Ask your spouse, your roommates, your parents, your pastors, Ask godly men and women, you know, can you see my progress? If you want to be holy, don't lean on your own self-evaluation because it's so easy to be self-deceived. 
Question number four, though. How can you pursue holiness? How can you pursue holiness? See, I grew up in a Christian school. We had uniforms and a very strict system growing up in this Christian school of what to do and what not to do. I remember growing up when I heard the term holiness thrown around, they'd throw around holiness all the time. I only thought about what I couldn't do. You couldn't play cards and gamble. You weren't supposed to do these really bad things like read Harry Potter or say bad words. Now, I'm not saying holiness is not that. Holiness is certainly putting off, but it's also putting on. If you want to pursue holiness, you need to start first by meditating on God's character. Those who are holy reflect on, reflect on God's character because God is holy. God says multiple times in the scriptures, be holy for who? For I am holy. And so the more deeply you know God, the more tools you have to be holy. Do you rejoice at what makes God happy? Do you grieve at what grieves God? Second, if you want to pursue holiness, separate from the world's influence. When the world sees your life, holy people are considered strange, weird, out of touch, maybe even offensive. Holy people stand out in this world as a sore thumb. You know, Christians and non-Christians, we all eat, we go to restaurants, we drive cars, we live in homes, we go to work, but everything else beyond the superficial is distinct from the world. Your value system comes from different worlds. The way you parent, it's not centered around worldly success, but on holy living. The way you conduct a relationship in dating, you set boundaries with no desire to defraud one another. The way you speak to one another, you use words of edification, not carousing, not filled with dirty jokes. The way you treat your parents with respect and honor, how you do your weddings with purity and worship in mind, not revelry like the rest of this world, partying and drinking. Non-Christians, should find you so very strange and weird because your morality is so vastly different from theirs. Another way to pursue holiness is to be zealous in your obedience to God. Those who are holy are passionate about moral purity. This is why it's so problematic when some of you might try to get so close to sin without sinning. So some focus on, you know, how far is too far? How much, how close can you get, how much can I get away with? Like in dating, how far is it the line where I'm starting to break purity? See, no, the sta- that's the wrong question. The standard is God's absolute perfection. See, all this to say, are you holy? Are you holy? Are you set apart, seeking moral purity? God is holy, and he says, be holy for I am holy. Now this morning, you know, we've seen two essential pursuits for genuine Christians. P, 
peace with everyone and holiness in everything. As we go forward this morning, though, I want us to look one more time at verse 14. It says at the end, without which no one will see the Lord. See, within this warning, there is also a promise that for those who pursue peace and holiness, you will see the Lord. See, here on earth, no one can see God and live. God alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see. In a very real sense, all of us don't see as we will. Our sight here on earth is virtually like blindness compared to the clearer vision you will have in heaven. I've recently been listening to a song recently on, re- on repeat. It's called On That Day. And its chorus goes like this. On that day, we will see you, shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voice as one. Till that day, we will praise you for your never-ending grace, and we will, we will keep on singing on that glorious day. Friends, if you are a Christian today, there is a day coming when your faith will be made sight. And on that day, what we long for, with all our being, with all of our hope, with all of our joy, will be yours to behold. You will see God and you will behold his glory forevermore. Until that day, though, pursue peace with everyone and holiness in everything. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We long to see you. We confess so often, though, that our lives revolve around trivial pursuits. Forgive us, Father. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to count in eternity. We know that Christ has died for us. He came to earth to save us from our sins so that we won't live as we were, but that we would be men and women of peace and holiness. We want to see you, Father. We want to be changed in the presence of a holy God. I pray for Lighthouse Bible Church here. Would this church really be a church that pursues peace with everyone and holiness in everything? In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.